Hello, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast, the podcast dedicated to helping family businesses thrive. My name is Ross Hayworth, and each week I will share insights and experiences to help you to navigate the complexities that can come from being in business with your family. You will also hear directly from family businesses who have been kind enough to share their own stories. As ever, I am grateful for the support of my good friends over at the Institute for Family Business. The IFB support family businesses in overcoming their challenges and help them build lasting legacies, something that we have a shared passion for. You can find out more about their work by heading over to ifb.org.uk. Right, let's get on with this week's show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. My guest this week is Mike Kane, who is a corporate lawyer and head of the family business team at Turk and Connell. Uh, Mike, thank you for joining us. Morning, Ross. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank and you before we get into the detail of what we're going to be talking about, which is some of the sort of legal and technical aspects of succession planning, can you give our audience an overview of uh, your career and, and how you've come to be doing what you're doing today? Sure, thanks, Russ. So I've been in practice as a corporate lawyer for 25 years, and the, the client base with whom I've worked has predominantly been entrepreneurs and family businesses over that period rather than large corporate clients as such. So I've really been imbued with you know the, the things that you've that you're exposed to being around families, disputes, and just a different way of working, I, I guess, with families as, as opposed to large corporate clients. So 10 years ago, I joined the leading Scottish private client firm, Turk & Connell, which actually operates across the UK from offices in Glasgow, Edinburgh, and London. So our clients are UK-wide and actually fur- further afield. And... You know, in my world of family businesses, Turk and Connell was the, the natural choice of places to go because its whole business is built around families and entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a really natural fit. And I and I was the first corporate partner hire. Uh, as a little sort of side hustle, if you like, my my wife's mother owned and ran a group of care homes. And unfortunately, she contracted breast cancer a number of years ago now 20 odd years ago and I suppose I was the closest person of oi you've got some experience with business stuff you'll do you you'll need to come in and run the business so uh-huh. I was I was running the business on the side for maybe six years but actually for those in the audience we know a little bit about care homes it's a highly regulated um, industry yeah. and you know becoming significantly worse these days so I had to get up to speed with the regulatory side and essentially I was operating across finance director and managing director role of this this group and it had some issues it was a bit undercapitalized but eventually we, we got it turned around and all the systems and procedures put in place and we exited from that business so sadly my mother-in-law never came back into it and uh-huh. while she did recover she exited with some cash and that that was probably the best outcome for for everyone I think yeah and I think one of the things we're going to be talking about is is outcomes of succession planning and it it's one of those 
items that should perhaps always be on an agenda from a family business perspective. Yeah. It's very often one of those subjects where there's so much uh, involved in succession planning. There's, there's so much to it from, from both an emotional and, and technical and financial aspect that it can be difficult yeah. to know where to start. And what, what we're going to be talking about here um, today is some of the sort of legal considerations, tax considerations to be thinking of. But perhaps the, the starting point, I guess, is is understanding motivation. Would, would you agree? Yes, that's absolutely right, Russ. And, you know, I, I, I meet a number of business owners who are on a journey towards an exit. I mean, I, I suppose every business owner is on a journey towards an exit, whether, you know, they're starting <laughs> off or, yeah. or it's further along the, the scale. But, you know, typically I'm meeting people in their 50s, 60s, sometimes a bit older. And it's really quite fundamental for us as advisors to work out just what the, what the motivation is, you know, what they want to achieve. Mm-hmm. Why have you done this? Why, you know, what's the end game? What do you want to achieve? And sometimes the business owners don't know themselves and you have to go through a bit of a discussion with them. And I quite enjoy that. I quite you're just having a cup of coffee with them and teasing out how they've got to their, you know, their position that they might want to exit. And I've had a range of different answers. You know, A, I'm fed up. I've done this long enough. B, I want to retire in five years' time. I've been grooming the business for my children, you know, sometimes on the, the agenda, which is really good from uh, a sustainability point of view health issues sometimes uh-huh. a, a whole you know a whole range of things i think that the critical thing though is not f- for us as advisors to impose our desired outcome on them uh-huh. and you know brutally a third party sale is the is the thing that's going to produce most in terms of fees for a corporate lawyer but that's not what we're about it's about finding out what's best for our client and working out their motivation and, you know, the the big picture for them. Uh So yes, motivation, absolutely key and some really key questions to ask them. And part of my role when I work with families is ensuring that there's this alignment between the expectations of the senior generation and the the next generation and, and possibly the one beyond that depending on on what stage the the business is at and there can be conflicting needs that need to be managed throughout a transition be that passing down from from one generation to another be that a sale but the the key i find with with a lot of it is having those conversations early rather than you know 6 months before you know, you look on the calendar six months ahead and think, oh, here's my 65th birthday approaching. I'd better start having these conversations around succession. Yeah. Probably doesn't give enough time to really cover all of the, the bases that, that need to be looked at. But it is also an intimidating subject because the, the expectation side of things, in, in my experience, is often it's unsaid. Often it is something where the next generation are either expected to take on ownership at some stage 
and those conversations around whether that's right for everybody involved or not don't necessarily happen. And yeah. I guess, I don't know whether you agree or not, but having those conversations early makes everybody's lives easier, particularly when it comes to that, that succession being a smooth transition rather than a, an abrupt and, and disruptive one. Yeah, I, I would agree with that mainly. I think that's kind of delving into the, the psyche of business owners. Mm-hmm. So in, a, in an ideal world, you're absolutely right. Your mom or dad are going, going to sit down with one or two of the kids and say, right, you're the next show in town. And over the next three to five years, what we're going to do is train you up. And that might be internal training in the business or we're going to ship you off to do X, Y, and Z, whether it's work elsewhere or an MBA or something. And you'll come back in and this is what a succession plan is going to look like. Now, the number of conversations that we have with that are sadly few and far between. And more often than not, it's a game of poker between G1 and G2 or you know, further further down the uh, generational line. And there are sort of external factors that will feed into that. Daughters has, is a key issue, you know. Mm-hmm. I and mean, we, we still, unfortunately, particularly in the UK, have this idea of the business is going to the oldest child, son, mm-hmm. uh, and particularly in farming-type communities. You know, and... You can make up your mind on whether you think that's a good idea or a bad idea, but actually, you know, if a dad has a couple of sons and a daughter, for example, and if he sat them down and said, okay, what's going to happen is the business is going to the oldest uh, child, son number one, but children two and three, you're getting nothing, or actually what you're going to do is the fairest thing and give the oldest child 80% and 10% to the other two, fairest. Uh-huh. Very complicated stuff. Yeah. And also, you know, that that can then create resentment and a whole bunch of different things. So actually it's a really it's a really complicated scenario depending on you know, who's in the picture and what the skills are and experience sets and so forth. Uh-huh. But I, ideally yes, you want a nice straight, simple scenario of mum and dad saying this is what we're doing and we're working towards it over the next three to five years. But mm. sadly, life is quite a lot more complicated than that in, in families. And Yes, yeah. yeah, very much so. And again, in terms of kind of looking at the the pre-planning stage, I guess, of, of succession, is looking at w- what are the needs of the sort of retiring generation uh, and, and can they be met by... Yeah independent means do they still need to be linked to to the business what are your thoughts on on that side of things yeah absolutely so part of the fact find isn't it to work out what the financial requirements are going forward financial security if you know if g1 have sufficient funds then you know the the range of option options actually widens out quite considerably whether they can gift the business down to the children or maybe something a, a, a bit off beam, which is an employee ownership type of situation, for example. And we can come on to, to chat about some of the key issues with those things. But yes, yeah. I think working out what the, 
what the financial position is, and also thinking about how tax is going to interact with all of that. Mm-hmm. And you know, obviously tax is different in different jurisdictions. Yeah. Across Europe and the US and the UK, it will be different. Mm-hmm. But yes, it's a key thing to factor into the discussion as well. Mm. And I guess I know we we don't live in this ideal world, but in the ideal world, there would be enough uh, runway, if you like, enough time before succession happens during that process where those financial considerations are taken into account. And one of the the concepts I I work uh, with people on is this financial independence from the business so that it increases your options rather than thinking we have to have a sale or we have to, we're so financially reliant on the business, we have no no other independent source of of wealth that we need to stay involved with it until our our final days because uh, of that financial dependence. And and the strain that can put on relationships within families in, in that scenario can be disruptive as well so we're not in ideal world and we know that from our own experiences that uh, that doesn't necessarily happen but it's important to consider the financial implications uh, again as far out as as we can exactly yeah i mean the the more time you've got to consider that and to factor it factor into your your plan the better Mm -hmm. so but again looking at the tax bit and obviously i can only look at that from a high level point of view because yeah. I'm not a tax advisor and also just a UK comment if you look at the interaction between timing and tax so if if you've got a five-year plan to retirement and you're living on salary or dividends then the likelihood is that you're going to be paying a much higher rate of tax and so for example in the UK that might be 45 or indeed in Scotland 46 percent on salary Whereas if you exit before five years, so this year or next year, then you should be into a capital gains tax environment. And at present, you might, and this might change, and it might be slightly higher depending on your circumstances, but you might actually benefit from a 10% rate. Uh So if you look at a lump of cash now at 10%, as opposed to working for another four or five years under stress, and at the end of that period, having suffered 45% tax on mm. the money that you've taken out, yeah, you might be as well retiring now and benefiting from the, the 10% rate. Mm. And you know, there, there are ways of making that affordable for the for the business or the people buying you mm. out, spreading it out over a period of time or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so assuming that the, there is the the discussion around the financial requirements and, and that's not forcing people's hands around what, what needs to happen with the business. Yeah. What are some of the sort of legal and structural considerations that, that family businesses would ideally take into account when they're having these uh, discussions? Okay. So I think from a, from a structural, a high level structural point of view, again, we need to go into a fact find on a number of different um, scenarios. And so I, I think what we're assuming is that it's just G1 who are the shareholders in, in the business, mm-hmm. perhaps mom and dad. But if, for example, they've granted some options or let some of the senior team 
acquire some shares in the business. And obviously, they're not the only people to take into account at that point. One of the things that people often don't think about is that certainly from a tax point of view and possibly from a purchaser's point of view, the likelihood is that a sale of the entire issue share capital of a business is going to be the best way to go. Mm-hmm. The alternative would be for the company to sell its business as a going concern. But from a tax point of view, that's a car crash because you end up with double double taxation. Right. So if we're back to looking at the scenario that it's got to be 100% of the shares in the company being sold. If you don't own 100% of the shares, then you're goosed. Yeah. And the way that you the way that you fix that situation and protect against it is to, to make sure that when you give away the shares, you also put in place some governance documents, typically a shareholder agreement. And that shareholder agreement will include a drag along provision mm-hmm. so that if the majority shareholders want to sell to a third party, they can drag the minority shareholder into that. And that doesn't stymie a sale. Or mm-hmm. indeed, give the minority shareholders too much leverage on the on the sale. Yeah. So, what what are we selling? Mm. So that it's a fundamental thing. So not not just to assume it's hundred percent. Then I think looking at possibly looking next at the management structure within the business, mm-hmm. and from a value point of view, when you when you come to move the business on, particularly if it's a a trade sale or a private equity buyer Russ. So leaving aside dynastic succession and management buyer because that wouldn't have this problem. Mm-hmm. But if it's an outright sale and you haven't got your management team in place, then the value of your business is going to be impaired, mm. particularly if it's private equity coming in because that's the first thing they want to look at is strength, the, the people running the business. That's essentially what private equity are, are paying for. Mm-hmm. So there's a lead-in time, obviously, to get your management team in place. And that's years, that's not months, that's years. And yeah. they have to be you know, hitting the, the budgets and the business plan and have strategic direction and a bit of nose about them. I think then to consider the likely pool of buyers, and this comes back to your initial question and observation about what the motivation is, whether it's value out or legacy or something else mm-hmm. but who the who the potential pool of buyers are and i'm working with a business just now where there aren't any governance documents in place it's a big shareholder base of maybe well uh, relatively big of maybe 10 shareholders or so mm-hmm. and what the other shareholders have done is left my client to run the business. So he's the guy with all the contacts and the the operational know-how, relationships with customers, relationships with clients. And if there's to be a management buyout essentially by my client, the rest of the business, the pool of buyers in that scenario is actually really quite limited Mm. when you do the analysis because my client's not locked into the business. He doesn't have any restrictive covenants um, uh-huh. where he's agreed not to compete with the business. Any buyer coming along is going to need my client in the in the sale in order to leave leverage value. 
so really the, the rest of the shareholders have undercooked that situation by quite a significant way in terms yeah. of just letting somebody get on with the running of it and not really thinking about pinning down the the four corners of the legal framework. Uh -huh. um, so the pool of buyers is actually a pool of one in that scenario, and it's yeah. my client. Yeah. Uh -huh. And actually the value, he's in a position to to drive and dictate that. Yeah. So it's all these little nuanced things that you have to look at when you're considering who might buy and what the values might be. And you know, it's a complicated business. It's a mm. really complicated business. And that lack of formality, for want of a, a better phrase, uh, around sort of the governance structure uh, and the legal structure is something that is relatively common when, when it comes to working with family there's no not necessarily seen the need to have a shareholders agreement or it's not necessarily perceived as having a contract of employment and and that kind of stuff but perhaps in the early stages at, at least and part of the yeah. I don't necessarily like the phrase but there's, there's a phrase of professionalizing the family business it, yeah. it makes it sounds as if they've sort of been running around like headless chickens before that stage and all of a sudden they're going to have some structure behind it. But what we mean by that is that introduction of the kind of documents and governance that you would have in place in exactly. a non-family owned entity to, to protect everybody that's involved. It's not necessarily to come in and stop people from achieving what they want to achieve. It's to allow them to do it in, in a more structured way. Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah, no, that's an absolutely right assessment. And you can see how it's done. I mean, if, you know, if I were to set up a, a business with my wife, I think the last thing I'd be thinking about would be a shareholder agreement uh -huh. because of the close relationship I have with my wife. Yeah. And actually your focus in the early days is on the operational aspects, uh -huh. getting that right. So I think what tends to happen is that people allow that that situation to, to roll over for years, if not if not decades. And you know, it's fine as long as that is the status quo, but of course, they're all the what if scenarios. And I think I think where where it would pull a family up is if they're transitioning into the next generation and they don't take that opportunity to to say, actually we've got you know, three or four children or two is actually the worst mm -hmm. coming into the business and before you're getting the shares we are insisting that you have a fully thrashed out set of governance documents and what it's not to do is to to cause division amongst the family but it's to go through the process of thinking about the types of scenarios and proper decision making proper governance and all the what-if stuff so, I mean, the, the typical what-if stuff, death, getting married and possibly falling out with um, your spouse, mm -hmm. incapacity. In the day and age in which we live, incapacity is becoming more and more prevalent. It's really difficult to, to manage. Mm -hmm. Financial issues. I mean, it's not unknown for family members to, you know, to, to get into financial difficulty over mm -hmm. something no fault of their own and need cash. So all of that can impact on the business. Uh -huh. And I think what we're looking at is not getting any particular family member into trouble. We're not at all trying to do that, but we're looking at it from the point of view of protecting the business uh -huh. for the benefit of everyone. Yeah. So that these destabilizing things that can happen don't, uh -huh. and they don't 
undermined because there's a chaotic governance structure. Mm. You've mentioned a couple of times the the term monastic succession. Yeah. Just firstly clarify what's meant by that in case it's a phrase people haven't necessarily come across. But also what what are some of the issues and and areas of focusing if that's the intention? Okay. So, yeah, what, what I intend by that phrase shorthand for passing on down to the next generation and you know, again I would say don't do it unless you make the next gen have shareholder agreements in place mm-hmm. and have thought about all of the, all of the issues. I was sitting with a family two evenings ago who were talking about dynastic succession and they have this great plan and it, it's good they've thought about it the children are late 20s, early 30s, so it's a good time to pass on. But what they hadn't appreciated is that by giving the children the shares, they're actually creating a massive tax problem. Right. And in the UK, the tax problems are capital gains tax and inheritance tax issues. Uh-huh. So from an, from an IHT inheritance tax point of view, mom and dad pass on the shares. It's quite valuable business. If they then die within seven years, they've created an inheritance tax charge. Equally, there are capital gains tax charges which arise um, as a result of just gifting the the shares. Mm. So there are are ways of potentially postponing the the tax issues for us. But what, what we discussed was, you know, it might actually be better to effect a family buyout and we can achieve that by in ways that, that actually don't involve the children putting their hands in their pocket for a penny, mm-hmm. but the business the business affects it in a tax efficient manner. Right. Um, and we're able to do that using a new holding company. So what that will do is crystallize the tax now, provided it's done at fair market value. Some some money comes out to pay the tax, and the parents can get money out in a tax-efficient manner over the coming years to the extent they need to. So that's possibly, although it sounds weird, it's possibly better to crystallise the tax now and pay for it mm-hmm. rather than just gift the shares and you know, actually also gift a, a massive tax problem to the to the children. Yeah. And again, in, in my experience with that, there can, particularly if you're looking at, say, second to third generation where first generation perhaps gifted shares to the second generation yeah and there again is that expectation that well if that's happened above me that must be the the route to which i take those shares on but but it's not it's not as simple as saying well that just because that's the way things have been done historically and that that, that is the the right or only way to do things now it, it should be looked at with a fresh pair of eyes around which route is going to be most efficient for the family again depending on what the intention is depending on where the uh, yeah. kind of merits lie on each of those alternatives yeah no that's that's absolutely right and what actually i, I came across i came across a guy oh, a few years ago now and he'd been in that position he was he was in his 30s the business had been through two previous generations and he just inherited the shares. Right. So when I met him, 
Actually, I met him about a year after he'd inherited the, the, the shares. But in the meantime, he'd sold them. He'd sold the business. Right. And I looked at him kind of aghast and, you know, can you just sort me through the, the thinking with that? And actually, yet he exited with a shed load of money. I mean, a, a proper shed load of money in it. Uh-huh. I wouldn't like to say how much it was in case people work out who this, this person is. Uh-huh. A, a well-known family business. And he said, it's actually about risk. So all of my assets were tied up in one one basket. Mm-hmm. I had all the expectation that I was going to run the business, and I probably could. But from my children's point of view, I didn't want to put the expectation on them that they were going to have to come in and operate the business mm-hmm. and all the risk that you know, was concentrated in our hands and potentially their hands. So rather what I'm doing is... I've liquidated the family's holding. I've exited with this big lump of cash. And what I'm going to do is wait and find out what it is the children actually want to do. Mm -hmm. And then I'll have the money to back them, whether it's into a new IT business or property development or, you know, professional services or something. Yeah. And in the meantime, I've de-risked from our family's point of view. And I I think that's a really interesting point because... All too often, we hear the statistics around succession that I think it's 30% from first to second, 13 to second to third, and 3% on the third generation and beyond. Yeah. And yes. there's obviously that that's a specific study looking at a specific thing in, in a, a specific time, but they're used to try to define what success is for a family business. Now, to me, what that uh, chap's done is a successful outcome because he has cr- sort of cashed the wealth in to allow opportunity for future generations to live the lives that they want to live but from a statistical perspective that would go down as a cross on those statistics rather than a tick on those statistics because yeah success success and succession is linked to this sort of passing down of of the family um business and I think that's a, as an important consideration when we're looking at succession is what 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 do you actually want to do as a family? Do the next gen want to, to take the business on? Is it their dream and their passion and their vision? And if it is great, there's ways to facilitate that in a, a really efficient way. But there's also ways to say, well, okay, the right thing to do now is this third party sale or a sales for your management team or as you've mentioned, the the sale to the potentially an employee ownership trust. But having that discussion without the pressure of thinking we have to do it in a particular way because that's what's expected of us is an important stage. Yeah, no, that's that's right. And you also, you could get into, I mean, there's there's family dynamics going on too. It's It's not just the business and the finances, but your relationship with your children and that's the that's the thing that complicates our our world yeah so in, a, in another family business i was working with it was actually a very old business two or three hundred years old uh-huh. um they got down to you know several generations six seven eight that that sort of territory uh-huh. and there were a number of children that could have come in to take it over but none of the kids were displaying any appetite or, or aptitude for coming into this particular business. So that's a real headache. And I think if the family had forced, people I was working with had forced that upon a particular child, A, is that right for the business? 
maybe, maybe not, depending on outcomes, but also how does that work in the family dynamic and things like resentment and, you know, he got it and the other person didn't and yeah. all that kind of stuff. Complicated business, that really yeah. complicated. Very much so. So, so we've looked at so far the kind of sale side of things, the passing to, to next generation. One of the other options we've looked at is selling to a, a management team or, or potentially the an employee ownership trust, which which we have we've covered some of the specifics on employee ownership trust in previous episode but it might be worth us having a, a reminder of some of the the factors of that at, at some stage but in terms of that management buyouts first what are the kind of relative merits on that versus say an external sale where where the management team are part of that purchase yeah yeah so i th- i think there's a lot to commend a management buyout and you know the, the perception for first of all just to to talk this through the perception is the price is going to be softer uh-huh. and it may well be it may well be slightly softer but actually in the management bias i've been exposed to often the clients will have a figure in their mind and if they get to that hurdle figure through discussion with the management team they're happy uh-huh. So one of, one of the great things about a management buyout process is that it's a vendor-led process. So your, your client, the seller, the family, the entrepreneur can really take charge of the process in terms of price. They've picked the buyer already. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They know who it's going to be. They know what their motivations are. Hopefully they're going to keep the business in the locality it's based. That's often quite a big concern that an overseas buyer will come in shut everything down and move everything overseas. Mm. So price and control of a process. A third party sale, and I, I do and I do a lot of these, I do a lot of third party sales. The biggest fear and the thing that we're always waiting for or trying to manage is price chipping. So you know, have I acted for quite aggressive buyers in the past and you know I, I've been told, you know, Somebody would pick up the phone from downside somewhere. Right, Mike, it's completion meeting. It's your turn. We're not there. You're the guy in the room. Uh-huh. Get the deep fat fryers heated up because <laughs> we need to get them ready for the price chip. Right. And you get, your heart sinks and you get put into this quite emotional situation with a guy that's about to retire and you've just taken £2 million out of his back pocket because of yeah. a price chip from a corporate buyer. So as a, as a seller and seller advisor, there's a lot of psychology about managing that, managing the expectations of a, of a seller mm-hmm. and the timing and getting all the building blocks in place. So obviously with the management team, that's pretty much out the window. The very, very few price chips that you'll come across in a, in a, in a vendor-led management buyout, I would say. So, that, so that's the first... I think that's the first big thing. Second thing is confidentiality. So again, if you're going through a third-party sales process, you know, if you're speaking to a competitor, you have to share confidential information with them. And as nice as your NDA is going to be, as well drafted as it might be, at the end of the day, if there's a breach, there's a breach and 
actually it's quite difficult to put the cat back in the bag after that. So, yeah. so sharing confidential information and then the warranty and due diligence process. So third party sale, the buyer doesn't know anything about the business. They're coming in, they're raking around in the wardrobes, under the bed, you know, they're looking for problems uh-huh. for price reduction. And that's actually a really stressful process for sellers is worried about what they're going to find and have they done everything properly. Whereas with the management team, again, you're removing most, if not all of that, there are few warranties on the sale. So it's a cleaner exit in that, in that sense. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, a management buy as a process and concept, you know, is easier, I would say for, a, for a seller to go through the, you know, the, but just rewinding and picking up on a particular point, the first thing that I look at from a legal perspective when looking at management by possibility is the restricted covenant. Right. And I, I know I mentioned that before, but if your management team aren't locked into the business rust with restricted covenants, you know, the example I was giving earlier of a pool of one buyer and mm-hmm. no restricted covenants, you don't want to be there. You definitely yeah. don't want to be there. So if you're if you're warming up as a seller to a management buyout in a few years' time, you know, get your restricted covenant service contracts in place, nailed yeah, down. Definitely. And I think another consideration on the, the management buyout side of things is family businesses are known for their sort of family values and, and being more driven by those than pure profit and i know businesses need to make profit to, to continue yes to so th- this is not yeah. um, saying that the values far outweigh the the benefits of, of profits but when you're selling to an, a, an external buyer there can often be that concern as well is are they going to continue to operate things in a way with which we would feel comfortable as a family yes. and by doing that with a management team who are already there, who are already living those values through the way in which they're operating things now, I know there's no guarantee with these things, but there's a higher level of likelihood that they will continue to do things along the same sort of lines as the family have been doing for, for however many years they've been doing it. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. So a continuation of the culture, yeah. so management team, or indeed an, an employee an employee team, and we should maybe just touch on that for a second, but mm-hmm. they understand the culture, they're bought into it, and it's just an extrapolation of that going forward. Yeah. On third-party sales, I mean, so often you hear, you know, I want to find a buyer that will understand the culture, look after the employees, and the next conversation is, Mike, I think I've found that buyer. Nine times out of ten, it's just, it's a disaster. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, particularly if it's overseas buyers buying something, it's difficult to understand the culture. Mm-hmm. On the on the employee side, we are seeing a few more employee buyouts through employee ownership trusts. Mm. I think they, they work really quite well for particular businesses and they work well in rural locations. So where the pool of buyers is smaller, maybe where the ticket price of the business is smaller. And also from, from a seller's point of view, Russ, a great legacy to leave behind. Mm-hmm. You know, typically these businesses are much more stable if they're in employee ownership hands. And, you know, to be honest, a, a little tax bounce in the UK for, for owners exiting through 
employee buyout. So at present, there's a very generous capital gains tax position where if you sell a controlling interest into an employee ownership trust, there's no capital gains tax on the sale mm-hmm. at present. So an, an incentive to help those businesses. Yeah. But the you know, but the process is more complicated. It is yeah. certainly more complicated than a managed buyout. Yeah. And I guess another area of appeal on the employee ownership side is that you can still retain some family ownership. It just has to be a controlling. So 51% needs to be within the the EOT side of things. But that that means that you could still have the family owning 49% of the the share equity within that business and, and benefiting from the dividend stream or or, or profits from, from that. Yes. Without necessarily having to be working within the business. There's obviously that opportunity, but but it it does mean that you can sort of segregate the two and benefit from the best of both worlds of having your uh, your employee owners who are motivated to run the business well because they benefit from it directly. It's different from being just an employee and I think just in, in inverted commas but but if they're aligned to the values and wanting the business to be a, a continuation of that culture an, an EOT is possibly the, the most aligned to um, that side of things with the ability to retain some ownership as well yeah yeah a good a good mix and match type of approach to the ownership and also I guess perhaps a staged or a phased exit for a business owner. Uh-huh. So maybe 51% initially and then another tranche later on. Yeah. Or the ability to to you know to pass it down to G2 and have some employee ownership. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's yeah. quite flexible and that's actually quite attractive in a lot of yeah. respects. Um, but again, it's a, a process rather than an event. The, the kind of the last bit of a, an employee ownership trust is is the bit where the bit the shares go into um, that. There's lots and lots it of stuff be, that yeah. can be can be done beforehand to to prepare everyone for it. It should be. I I have heard of a couple of employee ownership things where we weren't involved, but the the founder of the business implemented an employee ownership buyout and informed the staff it was happening after the event so they turned up wow. to work <laughs> on a monday morning as owners of the business nobody <laughs> knew anything else about it. <laughs> that's a conversation to have on a monday morning isn't it that's a conversation to have and not not one i particularly recommend no no fantastic so we've looked at a lot of the different sort of technical aspects and i think sort of re- recapping on what we said at, at the outset in terms of understanding motivation and intention and, and what a successful outcome would be for, for the family would perhaps be a, a very good and useful starting point. What, if you could give sort of one other tip as to how to successfully approach the, the legal and tax aspects of a succession process. What I think, I think what it, I think what I'd say, Russ, perhaps not so much legal, but just in summary, the, the key things are, Think of yourselves as investors in the business. Mm-hmm. Okay, you are owners, but you're also the main investor in your business. And as a result of that, you carry all the risk. Is it appropriate for you to do so? Mm-hmm. You know, should, should you exit now and or pass on now and maybe have a carried interest or something, but de-risk your, your own position? I think the next thing I'd say is don't always assume the status quo is going to remain the same. Mm-hmm. You know, the, 
economic downturns, health issues, number of buyers in your market, changes to your market. The next thing I'd say is timing is absolutely everything. In business life and in life, timing is critical to, to what you do. And you have to use time strategically in your decision making. Right. So I think those are the key messages that I, I would leave with a, you know, a family or an entrepreneur thinking about, you know, I've reached this point in, in my life, what happens next? Mm. Those are the key things I get them thinking about. Brilliant. Fantastic. And how can our audience find out a bit more about you, Mike, and get in touch? The best way to get in touch is mike.kane at turkenconnell.com. And Turk and Connell has a good website with some good family business case studies and materials on it. Mm-hmm. You should be able to find it on the internet if you if you Google Turk and Connell. So yep. That's the best thing. Fantastic. And we'll put links to um, those in the show notes. So if you uh, want to get in touch with Mike and you haven't got a pen, head to the show notes and the contact details will be listed there. But for now, Mike, thank you very much for your time, for your insights and uh, take care. I hope you found this episode useful. If you have, then why not share it with your family and see what they think? I work with families just like yours to help them to better understand the complexities that can come with being a family in business. So whether you're just starting out or heading into the umpteenth generation, if you feel that I could help, check out fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ and get in touch. Until next time, take care.